So we had a, what I think is a, a new and insightful conversation last episode about trauma, in particular trauma-informed care, and I think Alan brings a new perspective uh, in that regard that I think is worth engaging the audience in. And um, a little bit after the episode yesterday, we kept going forward with um, trauma-informed language and so forth, and there were a couple of topics that we touched upon that I thought would be important just to continue to discuss. Um, with you all as well moving forward. So uh, in that regard, one of the things that was brought up was sort of this collision course in time uh, that you've experienced and been witness to about, you know, sort of clinical and medical interventions uh, taking place. You know, in my uh, minimal reading of addiction treatment and its history, one of those collisions was the um, bringing in of insurance benefit plans that started dictating care in the early 70s. Um, in that regard, and I think that's where we can probably maybe start as to where we see these clinical and medical interventions sort of colliding um, in that way. And so I guess the question is, uh, what did that look like for you and what have you seen in time, Alan, that this collision course has been on a path of? And then in relationship to trauma, specifically through that lens, how did that take place in your eyes? Wow, that's a big question. Yeah. So compact it, bring it <laughs> Great. down. Yeah. Uh, well, what comes up for me as you're talking is what I said toward the end of our last conversation, that I think that when medical and behavioral joined, they had not a lot of language in common Absolutely. except trauma. And so that became the basis for the collaboration that we built We've built an entire system based on this notion of trauma being the common element between medical and clinical. And, and that's a great idea, except. Caveat. <laughs> except that physical trauma is actually a physical stress to the body. And that seems pretty clear. I mean, you yeah. hurt yourself, you're tra that's a trauma in the medical world. Emotional trauma is a stress that happens emotionally, but also requires perception. Physical trauma doesn't require perception. It's simply your body reacts to it and it's a physical response. Emotional trauma requires perception. A person has to perceive that they were traumatized. And I think that that's, that's gotten us off into the weeds a little bit. Absolutely. That we've made some assumptions that trauma is trauma, and all trauma isn't the same. There's a pretty specific difference. And we've also started to really look at ways that trauma is physical, right? I think we've really, we've created a trajectory of trauma and trauma therapy, even within the behavioral health world, that treats emotional trauma as a physical trauma. And not to say that trauma doesn't uh, present itself in the body or present physiologically, However, we re again, it's just sort of reinforcing what you're saying, that we've really looked at trauma as a sort of physical thing. And we've really continued to lean into that even today. So, yeah. Yeah. But the physical trauma usually resolves itself. Right. Yeah. Usually resolves itself. The emotional trauma that requires perception often then gets encapsulated. And that's why I said that, that in the last episode that I really prefer to work with guilt and shame because I believe that the moment what encapsulates emotional trauma past the physical aspect of it, the physical trauma gets resolved, the emotional piece 
you know, we talk in terms of big T, little t trauma. Trauma then gets encapsulated in, well, what I'll call history. But what history gives it is guilt and shame. That the moment that an emotional trauma is perceived as trauma, what happens the very next theme is that it gets encapsulated in judgment and shame. So, so it sounds like, I guess I'm just not entirely, uh, this is all great and it's important. I feel the direction, I feel the energy of brewing here about it. But there seems to be that subjective emotional feature tied to it. And then, so because we're talking about the collision of, of medical and clinical, so what, what is that bridge as far as that collision goes that we're sort of concerned about here now? Was there an over um, step maybe on the medical side to call that something physical? Um, a sort of brain state that has taken form in that regard? Or how, should, how can we you know, think about it in terms of that actual collision taking place? Like, what's the problem here? That's a good question. I, I'm not sure what the thinking was. Mm -hmm. What the outcome has been is that the medical community views emotional trauma, as you said, still as a physical ailment and treats it as such. We apply medication to it. We, we Absolutely. do and that. And I think, and to a certain degree, clinically, we do as well. We yeah. treat it as a sort of like terminal trauma to the body, but we, it's a terminal trauma to like the emotional mind, right? That's what, I think, clinically, how we approach it as well. It looks, um, I think that, you know, it goes back to, like you were saying, this uh, building for behavioral health and insurance. I think that we had to look for you know, the, the behavioral health model or the wellness model is really does not overlap well necessarily with the medical model. You are looking at a tension between subjective and objective, and medical does not do subjective extremely well, and, uh, and the behavioral health world doesn't do uh, objective very well, you know. So trying to find that common ground, and it really it was up to behavioral health to adopt the medical language in order to be able to sort of justify services and payment. And again, I think that that continues to, um, and uh, this is, uh, you know, I'm a huge proponent of the interdisciplinary medical model um, in conjunction with behavioral health model. However, what, you, what happens is you start, like Alan was trying to, was saying is that the medical model starts to inform or at least, or almost dictate the trajectory of the behavioral health approaches and the behavioral health um, intervention strategies. So as an unlicensed registered psychotherapist, it's a mouthful and means nearly nothing here in Colorado <laughs> other than a $300 fee every year. Uh, in that regard, I'm aware minimally of somatic experience and it seems like within that uh, therapeutic intervention, the trauma modality that it is, uh, correct me if I'm wrong here, I think it's stating something right, that emotional space, that traumatic event that we're calling encapsulated in time here is then sort of pushed into the body. It seems like we're really trying to draw a hard physiological approach that it's in us, maybe even all over us in that regard. And so one, is my reading of somatic experience correct? And two, is th that seems to be the connecting piece between like the clinical and medical bridge that there is some physical thing that is actually taking place. Absolutely. I mean, I think it's a perfect example of the way in which those two, and I don't know that it's actually, uh, it, that so I have um, my knowledge and experience with somatic experience. I'm not a, a somatic experience therapist, so I, I have limited understanding as well, even as a clinician. But 
and I think that there is some, uh, there is some obviously like evidence-based uh, work behind it that shows that there is efficacy to that level of treatment, but I think it's a perfect example of the way in which the medical model has really started to inform particularly the world of trauma and really in almost, I don't want to say hijacked, but certainly over-informed the actual approaches of treatment. That would be sort of my personal perspective of it. I think Alan could probably speak to SE a little bit better than I can. So. Well, I, I do want to draw the correlation between SE and EMDR, for example, that EMDR is designed to create bilateral stimu stimulation. It's to, designed to create, if we were, it's not exactly electricity, but it's kind right. of like electricity that flows between the hemispheres of the brain. The purpose of that for EMDR is to begin to, it's too big a word, but dislodge the relationship of thoughts and feelings that are stuck in yeah. that part of the brain so that they can be looked at discreetly. SE does the very same thing in the body. It wants to move energy where energy has gotten congealed from the sense of I was hurt there. So SE does work with physical trauma. It actually bridges that gap pretty nicely because it wants to put energy into and move energy into those places where a person, either a person's mind or their body has, has felt traumatized, has stored trauma in it. And so like that electrical impulse, we'll just call it energy if we want to be spiritual and woo-woo, wants to move that energy. Mm -hmm. yeah. In the very same way, the EMDR wants to move that energy bilaterally. Right. But it doesn't actually do anything to change the narrative, though, right? Like it you're doesn't. saying, it, we are not addressing perception, which is that missing piece. That no, it actually just gives us access to the information. Right. That's its point. It is not designed by itself. Sometimes having access heals, but it is actually just to open a door. It's just an, to open a door to those rooms. So it, it seems like then, because we're moving into language of correlation and now introducing cause and effect, causal relationships here, where there's certainly a correlative feature of trauma in which the energy is displaced in the body, the mind, or somewhere within this thing called the human body in that regard. And then we trigger that, it opens up the door. So it feels like there's a cause and effect relationship between those therapeutic interventions for trauma that give us access to that. So there's a cause and effect there, but the correlative nature of why, I, or the cause and effect nature of why I use drugs and alcohol to sort of quell those things, what does that look like? You know, in this regard, and I, I think we're, I don't think I best stated that question, but I think we're inching towards where we want to go here about these cause and effect relationships. When somebody says, I use because I have trauma, right. you know, mm -hmm. um, well, now we've opened up that door. It's, it's still encapsulated. Maybe it's open. It's not encapsulated anymore, but it's going to still be stuck in time, right? Right. So I think Gabor, Gabor Mate says it best. We don't, we don't use because we have trauma. We don't use for any of those reasons. We use because we're suffering. Absolutely. Yeah. Mm -hmm. It's that we don't feel good. We feel, and suffering's a big word. Absolutely. So we use because we're suffering. Well, yeah. I think you make an interesting, you made an interesting point though, that there is a, it's still just a correlation, right? Like the experience of pain and uh, the idea of suffering, it's not the reason specifically why people use, but there is a correlative, correlative relationship between 
the reason between suffering and the reason why people use. I actually, I would disagree a little bit with Monty's just, because that sounds like cause and effect, right? I'm suffering, I use. Yeah, so, okay, so I think, I think, I think this is wonderful, you know, for the viewers and thinking about the cause and effect, the correlative features, the dive deep. So we have what sounds like to me two different instances of an individual coming into treatment. The first individual comes in and says, I'm very aware and have access to what my trauma experiences are. And we have another individual who comes in who goes, I know I'm traumatized, and maybe they disassociated from a violent event or something that took place in their life, um, or something along those lines that sort of has it as a distance, where it feels meaningful then to pull out of the toolkit EMDR, SCP as experiences, as therapeutic interventions, and deliver though in this way. And then there's this individual where it seems like maybe the balance in that isn't really required to approach with EMDR and SCP in that regard. So, but for both instances, whether you do the deep dive, pull the trauma out, get those doors accessible, and whether they're already accessible, it sounds like we've done at that point the medical thing and insert now clinical behavioral health care, right? Now we're working on that shame and guilt. Is that an accurate display of the balance there that's yeah. taking place? Yeah. yeah, it sounds like pretty accurate, yeah. And I think that, um, I, I think the one thing I would add to that, or just the one caveat, is that regardless of if those doors are open or those doors are closed, you can actually still work on trauma, which is, I think, at what Alan's saying, through the, the lens of guilt and shame. Mm -hmm. Like, I think, in fact, using guilt and shame, it, it can be a good access point. You don't always have to go the EMDR SE route. The deep dive isn't always necessary. Sometimes bringing a light and sort of loosening up the, the sort of, um, the binds of shame and tr of shame and guilt will actually start to help access those uh, those door or open those doors sort of organically. So. Got you. So it's not just directional, right? We can go the other way. Absolutely. Yeah. It also reminds me why we've gotten a little off track between medical and and behavioral in some ways, because there's not a stigma to having physical trauma, right. unless it's profound. In other words, you can be stigmatized by having a TBI. You can be stigmatized by some kinds of physical trauma. But for the most part, our society does not stigmatize physical trauma. But we have managed to stigmatize emotional trauma profoundly. So it becomes really intransigent to treatment in some ways. People want to avoid it or want to have very selective access to that in a way that you go into an emergency room and anybody can look at your physical trauma. That's, well, depending on where it is, but anybody can do that. Sorry. Yeah, that's all right. Yeah. That's yeah. Why they have curtains in the but I think that's one of, the, one of the ways that by globalizing our approach to trauma, we're doing somewhat of a disservice. Right. Because we forget that emotional trauma is held really differently, and now our society holds it really differently. Right. And it's become a more, I don't know, it's, uh, we've complicated it to a certain degree. I think because of that. I yeah. think there is an extreme complication because of that. And I think that's why we're discussing this with the viewers and why, you know, seemingly like these concepts of trauma and boundaries are just so influential and why I keep talking about it on behalf of the viewers, you know, that are out there because it is complex and it's greatly oversimplified and I think rightfully so by, you know, patients who inform families I'm relapsing because of this trauma stuff that's undealt with, you know, at the end of the day. But it seems like in that regard that the 
cause and effect, there's no cause and effect relationship that ties the use together in that. What we want to say differently is I continue to experience shame and guilt for the behaviors, for the experiences around the trauma, and I've told myself uh, a really big story you know, that's not true at the end of the day. And that piece seems the cause and effect relationship. When that is nurtured, or more closely to the cause and effect relationship, when we start nurturing that shame story and those guilt strategies, it seems to reduce the propensity or the intensity toward use. Absolutely. Mm -hmm. Is that accurate? Yeah, I think that's true. Yeah, absolutely. So, um, so I, I'm hearing the balance in all of this. Um, so, you know, again, too, to stabilization models and approaches, it seems like for somebody who has um, not significant distress tolerance in early recovery journeys, the deep dive can be quite dislodging and disruptive for that individual. And so in a place like Peaks as a stabilization model, we're not going to go necessarily right at that, right? We're going to support um, those stories, and it's um, through that shame and guilt approach that we are creating, like you said, the clinical to medical side of things, right, as a bi-directional aspect here of opening up those doors through that narrative and allowing the individual to see not only how big the story is, but the actual impact uh, that trauma as that door opens had on that story and that narrative. Absolutely. So well, a little bit as a, as a prompt as we kind of head out <laughs> right. here, again, let's just remind I'm the viewers. I do have stuff to say yeah. about this, yeah. actually. Yeah. 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 Uh, well, if you have more to say about it, let's do it. Well, I just, as I was listening to you, I was, I go back to this notion of resilience. Because the truth of what you're saying is that a client who comes into early stabilization has no resilience. Absolutely. The substance they've been using would have compromised any resilience they previously had. Or because replaced it, yeah. resilience. Yeah, absolutely. Yeah. Well, it certainly replaced it, but not in an authentic strength building sort of way. <laughs> no way. <laughs> it's yeah. like putting a cast on your arm and expecting your arm to get stronger while it's in right. a cast. Absolutely. As it atrophies. Yeah, it, as it atrophies underneath. So that's what happens to our resilience when we use. It replaces it, but it doesn't actually strengthen us at all. It does the opposite. So in early recovery our, and in stabilization and this early process, we have to take the time to to empower clients and encourage them and guide them to build resilience so they can do that deeper work. Or we relegate them to simply giving up. How many people go to the gym at, in January and do this big workout and are so sore that they don't go the rest of the year? That's exactly the risk we run by going too quickly before clients build enough resilience to tolerate that deeper work. That's why we don't do it at the beginning. <laughs> well, it doesn't feel as, I think that there is a, a perceptual thing from a clinical side that doesn't feel as big, right? It doesn't feel as powerful. It doesn't feel as heavy and deep and as emotional. But the, the reality is that you have to build up to these things regardless. You know, right. as you're working on, you know, like re-strengthening that arm after it's been in a cast and working towards rebuilding those muscles and these small exercises that are helping to to sort of uh, rebuild tissue and, and, and connectivity and build muscle in a, you are still working on trauma, you know? It, you just don't, you don't have to be in the emotional trenches in order to do that. In fact, sometimes that's the worst place to be, especially when you have no resilience, which is again, what at that early stabilization model or that early stabilization period of treatment where people are. So. 
absolutely. And so what comes up for me here is that certainly because we're running out of time, so we don't want to bore the kids on the social <laughs> media and so forth who are watching us uh, in that regard. But uh, you know, in, in my time over the past five weeks or so, I've been supporting our admissions team, working admissions in this regard. And it seems you know, clear to me that as well, too, that when an individual is stating something like, well, they didn't work on my trauma, and their last treatment episode was six months ago, and they've been using ever since then in that regard, and now looking for care, it seems like we're sort of restarting the clock. Um, is that necessarily true uh, in that regard? Do, can they, have we moved again away and allowed for atrophy to take place, as that cast metaphor goes, by that six months of use in between, making it still less accessible in the way that they're... Well, if I go back to the physical exercise piece, yeah. the truth is that if you have exercised and gained strength, even if you stop exercising, those muscles remember and get stronger faster. Mm -hmm. So I think that's the same truth here, that if somebody has made progress, if they've gotten some recovery under their belt, and, or they've just gotten insight from earlier treatment, even though they go back and use, they still remember those things and can regain that ground faster than if they didn't do it the first time. Right. Still, however, you have to go back and start. You, to a certain degree, you start from the beginning, even though, like Alan said, you will, the, the sort of uh, trajectory or recovery or uh, repair is much more is, is much quicker, right? Because there mm -hmm. is a level of resilience there that's already been established. There but are, you still start with the same weight at absolutely, the beginning. Absolutely, yeah. absolutely. You still have to, and it's <laughs> going to feel different, especially if you've been into a if you've been to a facility or a treatment center where they're just deep, where the deep dive is the process, right? It's it's going to feel different in a stabilization model where it's like where you're we're much more about creating the, that resilience and building those containment strategies and those coping strategies and starting to rebuild the muscle basically from the ground up. Because so, the muscle that you've gained while you're in, um, while you're in those deep dive models are, is really, uh, can actually kind of surround those smaller, more nuanced muscles that you need for the, the fine movement, the sort of, uh, those fine point um, maneuvers that you need emotionally to actually be able to sort of rewrite your story and, and, really, um, and really get rid of those old narratives that don't work anymore. Absolutely. Well, for the sake of time, I mean, this is fulfilled. This has nurtured me in a big way, and I yeah. hope it's nurtured the viewers on the other side. Um, but a lot of questions still arise for me, and I'm hopeful that as we continue to bring this information forward, it's drawing a picture that is quite complex. This, this thing called addiction and mental health and trauma and all of the variables of it is a complex picture that's really difficult to navigate especially within you know, limited, limited treatment episodes. So certainly want to call on our past videos about direction of care, how important it is post-stabilization models to influence care beyond the walls of a treatment program such as ours or continue with IOP and so forth. And um, I feel passionate about continuing to bring on you know, guests such as Alan in the future as well um, that can continue to help um, promote the complexity as well as bring forward solutions because there is hope in all of this, no doubt, certainly. We witness recovery all the time um, post-programming at uh, Peaks. So um, in finalizing this, um, finding Peaks at peaksrecovery.com. Send us your questions, concerns, thoughts, ideas. Um, we would love to engage with you at a much larger level about what's coming up for you throughout these videos or maybe bits of information you've missed in the past. Find us on the Facebook, the, the Gram, Spotify, 
Um, check us out in the podcast and so forth. And um, until next time, I think uh, Jason Freeze and Chris Burns are up next um, as host in that regard. And I personally will see you in a few weeks. And uh, until next time, take care.